Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. What an extraordinarily bonkers week in British politics. We'll be discussing Theresa May's second defeat on her Brexit deal, all of the parliamentary vote and where this leaves our beleaguered Prime Minister. Plus, we'll be digging into whether there are any more legal mechanisms to win over Eurosceptic Conservative MPs and the DUP. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green and Whitehall Editor James Blitz. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also love positive reviews too. What a whirlwind of a week. Things began with a bang on Monday when Theresa May dashed off to Strasbourg to sign off a packages of tweaks and legal assurances and changes to her Brexit deal. It was then put to another so-called meaningful vote in the House of Commons on Tuesday, which the Prime Minister lost heavily. MPs then voted on whether they wanted to leave the EU without a deal. They didn't. And then they voted on whether they wanted a short extension, which they did. And, lest we forget, unless nothing changes, Brexit is still due to happen two weeks today. So, George Parker, the week began when Theresa May made a mad dash to Strasbourg on Monday, and this was to sign off a package of tweaks to her deal that had been negotiated by Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, and this was to try and convince Eurosceptic MPs and, crucially, the Democratic Unionist Party to get on side with her deal. What exactly did the Prime Minister bring back in this revamped package? Well, Alex will tell you a bit more about Geoffrey Cox's ill-fated trip to Brussels the previous week, where he'd been trying to insert a series of clauses into the withdrawal agreement, which were deemed totally unacceptable by Brussels. The rest of the week, Mrs May's negotiating team, led by Ollie Robbins, tried to pick up the pieces. Things looked like they run into the sand on Sunday night, but on Monday, Theresa May dashed off to Strasbourg to try and sign off a package, as you say, of some limited tweaks and assurances to the deal. She returned to London on Tuesday morning. I think it was about 2am she got back to Downing Street on Tuesday morning. And when dawn broke over Downing Street, there was this brief moment where they thought they actually had some momentum. And there was a sense that maybe, just maybe, they could get the deal over the line with this package of assurances. The problem was that Geoffrey Cox then had to turn all that Theresa May had negotiated in Brussels into a legal opinion, which was also written up during the early hours of the morning. I think Geoffrey Cox was all that pleased to be working on it late at night. And by the time it landed at 11 o'clock, it completely changed the mood because it was a three-page piece of legal advice which contained a massive sting in the tail, which basically said that Britain could be trapped in a customs union against its will. And all the momentum that Theresa May had for those few brief hours on Tuesday morning evaporated immediately. So Alex Barker, the reason Theresa May sent Geoffrey Cox off to Brussels was there was this sense in Downing Street that having negotiations led by Ollie Robbins had produced results, but results that were not politically palatable. So she sent the Attorney General, who holds this sort of weird role in Britain, that he is a lawyer, but he's also a politician. And how did those talks go? 
and how did, as George was saying, did they get unlocked and get this package over the line? Well, from the EU end, there was a degree of bemusement, A, that the UK was sending its top lawyer to do its most important political negotiation. B, from the demands that Geoffrey Cox was making in those talks, that they saw as going over old business that was fought over six months ago, a year ago. And what you then saw was a deal brought together with Ollie Robbins over the weekend Saturday with clearly not the kind of level of coordination with Geoffrey Cox that the EU side were expecting. And what ultimately happened was the package wasn't endorsed by the government's top lawyer. And here it's just fed that sense that they're negotiating with someone who's not in control of her own side, of her own position. And it really just smashes that sense of credibility that you need to drive through a negotiation like this. And we may well still see the price of this in days and weeks ahead as we look to this extension negotiation. So Miranda Green, as George and Alex were just saying there, that there was this brief moment where she'd got these tweaks because there'd been all this talk in Westminster of saying, oh, you're not going to get anything, there's no point in negotiating. And they did get this something, this package which had three elements, which was all about interpreting the backstop and saying, really, it is only going to be temporary, you don't need to worry. And there was a lot of frantic talk between Mrs May and the DUP who are propping up her minority government about saying, will this be enough? And my sense was they were pretty much ready to come back on board ahead of the meaningful vote on Tuesday night. But as George said, Jeffrey Cox produced this legal advice with the infamous paragraph 19, which at the very end, for journalists like us who are a bit lazy, you go to the end and you read the conclusion, which says there was no changing in the legal force of his advice. So really it was saying, yes, we've got all these extra things. It's less likely we're going to get trapped in the backstop, but it's still a possibility. And for Tory MPs, that wasn't enough. No, indeed. And... George talked about the brief moment when they thought they might get it through earlier this week. But in a funny sort of way, we've now ended up at the end of the week with a slightly more cheerful mood in terms of whether on their third or even fourth attempt they might get it through. So it's been this really weird roller coaster for all of us watching it closely of is she doomed? Will she win? Is she doomed? Will she win? You know, the attempt by the senior backbenchers on both sides of the House to seize control of the agenda and try and find a compromise. That went down by two votes. That was a real moment of drama, but also it meant that Number 10 could breathe a bit easier. And then by the end of the week, we've ended up somewhere where she has not one but two more opportunities potentially to whittle away at those Eurosceptic votes to just try and get enough people on side to get her deal through. So it's a very peculiar moment because you've rightly described this sense of chaos and this sense of crisis. I mean, the day on which she was trying to explain and justify her deal, having lost her voice and a storm was battering the House of Commons, it seemed like a kind of expression of the nation and the nation's leader at bay. But actually, weirdly, because of the extension, people are breathing a bit more freely. And very reluctantly and in a very bad mood, the Tory backbenchers do actually want to bring this to a conclusion and back the deal if they can gain enough cover to do so. So we've got the senior Tory backbencher writing for us this weekend saying the public's had enough. We just have to move on to the next stage. And I think that is the mood on the Tory side. Also, though, we should say that those people in the House of Commons who still think there should be 
a compromise and a softer Brexit. They haven't given up, even though their gambit failed this week. They haven't given up. And if on her third attempt she fails, they will try again. And it's worth noting, I think, that... Philip Hammond, who stood up this week to deliver his spring statement, an event that's usually a little moment huge, in the week. exactly, totally overshadowed by all of this. It was really noticeable that he used his spring statement to say, number one, we cannot afford a no deal. This is utter madness, which is a rebuke to his own side. And number two, very significantly, to talk about reaching out to other bits of the House of Commons and have a Brexit solution that's acceptable to everyone. So I think there's a lot of things still in play, actually. So the other thing as well is, in that second meaningful vote, there were 40 MPs who came in Mrs May's direction, including some very surprising names. So David Davis, the former Brexit secretary, who's a slightly maverick figure, who announced on the morning that he was probably going to back it. Nadine Dorries, who's a pretty hardline Brexit supporter in the Conservative Party. Philip Davies, a libertarian MP. So when you look at that list, it wasn't just the people who were objecting to the deal because they didn't like Mrs May or they were trying to make a personal point. These were really hardcore Eurosceptics who have realised that the calculation is now narrowing between Mrs May's deal and no Brexit because the sense is you have this long extension that that's where it's going to end up. So if we turn to what happened next, George, the Prime Minister stood up after losing that meaningful vote with a very croaky voice and promised a vote on a no-deal Brexit. Now, of course, we should always remember this is still the default option for the 29th of March, but MPs had not really been given a clear run at a crucial point in the process before now. And the government had made this a free vote because there were many people within the government who wanted to vote against a no-deal Brexit, but it didn't quite go to plan for the government. No, it didn't. I mean, Theresa May wanted to focus the no-deal vote very much on just stopping no-deal happening at the end of March. Um, That was fairly straightforward and, of course, involved her eating quite a lot of words because she had said repeatedly, of course, we would be leaving on the 29th of March. 108 times. Indeed, 108 times. And then they faced this amendment by a Tory backbencher, Caroline Spellman, which basically wanted to take a no-deal exit off the table for good. And that was far too much for Theresa May. But it turned into complete and utter chaos because nobody seemed to have quite calculated what would happen should the Spellman Amendment pass, which it did. And then people thought, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do here on the final vote? Because the motion's been amended. That means we have to take no deal off the table. And you ended up in a situation where you had four pro-European cabinet ministers abstaining on a three-line whip because by this point the government was whipping it against the final motion because it had been amended in a way they didn't like. And in normal circumstances, those ministers would be expected to resign. Yet they were given a sort of nod and a wink. They'd be okay if they abstained, which is what they did. And it created all manner of fury, as you can imagine, recriminations the next day. Chief Whip gave them a dressing down. But in the end, I suppose, better to be dressed down than lose your job altogether. But it was scenes of absolute chaos. And as Miranda was saying, you've just got the sense of the Prime Minister lost her voice. Everything's going wrong. The whole thing is a complete and utter shambles. And the next phase headlines were all about Brexit mayhem. But as Miranda said, the dust settled and we moved on to the next phase. So the thing that was interesting about this vote, Miranda, was whether this was in any way licensed by Number 10. There's been a lot of rumours going around Westminster that senior officials in Downing Street had said to Amber Rudd, Greg Clark, David Gork and the like that, look, you can abstain on this and you're not going to have to quit your job. Now, Sarah Newton, who is a junior minister at the Department for Work and Pensions, she took a principled stand and she actually quit in the voting lobby. She handed in her notice and voted against the government on the no deal motion. But those ministers abstain. And this just shows how really the whole government has fallen apart beneath our eyes this week. And obviously, we should say the final no deal motion passed by a huge majority because MPs clearly do not want a no deal break. 
Brexit. Well, that's interesting that you should say that because I think, in fact, the government hasn't quite fallen apart. And that's the point, because the cabinet was allowed, whether it was by a nod or a wink, who knows, to do that. So that's how we've able to actually survive to the end of the week with the same prime minister and the same government. It was utter chaos. I think also it was notable how confused a lot of the Conservative MPs were by this sudden switch on no deal, because for two years they've been parroting the line, no deal is better than a bad deal. And then all of a sudden the Prime Minister had had to change her stance on it. And actually, as a kind of measure of where the Conservative Party is at, I thought it was really significant. You had people trying to say... We must keep no deal on the table as a negotiating tactic, but we now have to remove it. But actually, no deal will be fine, except it's a catastrophe. I mean, people were absolutely all over the place. And this is the party of business that's being told by business groups that no deal is a catastrophe and trying to pretend that all the nation wants is certainty. You hear this the whole time. The nation just wants certainty. Well, the certainty of falling off a cliff to your certain death is no good to us. But I think the Tory crisis is at that point of utter chaos. But weirdly, the government has pulled through relatively intact. And I think those Remain-leaning cabinet ministers, clearly you saw from the lead that they got from Philip Hammond this week, they still think they're in the game and that they've got influence inside the cabinet room. Now, Alex, the third and final big vote this week was about extension. So everybody has really acknowledged for a long time that it was very unlikely we were going to leave on March the 29th, not least because there's not enough parliamentary time to pass all the legislation and the statutory instruments to make sure that Brexit happens smoothly. That was acknowledged formally for the first time when Theresa May put down this motion, which was voted on, which says that we will push it back to June the 30th. Now, of course, this is the UK saying, this. The EU has to agree to this too. But Mrs May is also playing a clever game here because she's saying we will only extend to the end of June if there is a deal to pass. If there's no deal to pass, it's going to be much longer. And her words were echoed by Donald Tusk this week. Yes, they were. And the first part of this, we've got to remember that it's in the context of this tactical negotiation about can they get the deal through. So the way that Theresa May and the EU leaders are looking at it in the first instance is Uh, are there things we can say that would enable this deal to pass before March 29th? And the talk of the long extension is one way to encourage Brexiters who are holding out to um, think twice. Donald Tusk also is at the kind of end of the EU debate that would potentially want to see Brexit reversed. He was open about the advice he'd be giving other EU leaders. But I wouldn't go as far as saying that there is any real solid consensus around a long extension in the EU. Quite the opposite. A variety of views. There's a lot of frustration. This is being prepared to some extent by officials and diplomats. But ultimately, it's going to be a call made by leaders in the room. And a lot will depend on the run-up to that summit, the situation that the Prime Minister's in, and the kind of interaction of these different calculations they'll be making, which include national interests, the upcoming elections, their political interests in those, what they want to see as the outcome of Brexit, and frankly, just how fed up they are with the UK. And 
the one thing that I'm clearly hearing from a lot of people here is that the biggest danger will be if the Prime Minister emerges from the third meaningful vote, having narrowed the margin, but still being some way off, securing a majority, if she comes to the summit making demands to change the withdrawal agreement or seeking extra concessions, it could end very badly. Otherwise, I think you'll have quite a nuanced debate between these leaders about long or short, about the kind of conditions they'll have. And I don't think there'll be a moment where they outright reject a request to extend. And so do you essentially mean that this is it in terms of the package? Because obviously the EU's always said in this debate, you're not going to get any more compromises. You're not going to get any more tweaks. Then they obviously got this extra package that they did. But is there a sense that really this is the end of the road in terms of any compromises or extra tweaks? You know, because there's Conservative MPs who still think when we get down to that final council meeting next Thursday, if it's very close, then they'll offer up something else. When you say package, you've got to be quite clear about which part. The commission, the people who have been leading this negotiation, have been very, very clear that the talks on the withdrawal agreement, and that's the backstop, the binding part of the treaty that defines Britain's exit terms, that's not open for renegotiation anymore. There's no additions, there's no extra interpretive text that are going to be added, there's no changes that are going to be made to it. And I think they will have support from the EU side, pretty solid support for that position. France has also been extremely clear, Emmanuel Macron has been extremely clear that there will be no renegotiation of the exit treaty. The the part attached to it, the non-binding political declaration on future relations, that's always a bit more open. If the UK changes its mind about the kind of relationship it wants with the EU, they'd be willing to renegotiate that depending on the extent of change that's needed and how detailed a document the UK would seek would maybe change the amount of time they would think is necessary for the extension. But in terms of withdrawal agreement, that's not going to be reopened. And if the Prime Minister comes asking for changes to the backstop, I think it could end very badly. And finally, for George and Miranda here, Mrs May's position that in under any other circumstances, different times, different policy, this would be it for the Prime Minister. She's now got the first and the fourth big defeats in House of Commons history on her Brexit deal. And yes, she's whittling it down, but her position really couldn't be weaker. And as Miranda was saying earlier, the Prime Minister is clearly not particularly well at the moment, that she's got a very nasty cough and could barely speak in the House of Commons. And speaking to Conservative MPs, there is this growing sense, particularly within the Cabinet, I think, that what this has proven is that once we do get past Brexit Day, this idea that she's going to go on for months and years in advance, that's not happening. That is certainly the uh, view among many uh, ministers and backbenchers. And it may well be true that the moment this deal gets over the line, if it ever gets over the line, Theresa May will be out the next day, or maybe she'll tender a resignation. But I'm not so sure. You have to try and imagine how we'll feel the day after. Relieved. Apart from, well, exactly, we will feel relieved, but there'll be a huge sense of relief in the country and at Westminster across all party lines that at least the first stage of this is done. Theresa May, if she gets it across the line, will have performed an escape act of a kind we've never seen before. And everyone will say, how did she do that? Incredible. She may be a weak prime minister. She may have extreme limitations as a prime minister. But what will the mood be like in the Conservative Party? There's no mechanism for getting rid of her until next December because the rules of the Conservative Party that vote confidence last December. If she decides to stay on, it'd be quite hard to dislodge her. And I just wonder whether people will just want a period of peace and quiet. 
you know, what is the alternative to Theresa May staying on? The alternative is she stands outside Downing Street the day after this deal goes through and says, I'm starting a leadership contest. And then we'll have another month of bloodletting in the Tory party along European lines about which way the second phase of the negotiation is going to go. The party will end up being led, we assume, by a Brexiteer who will be even further removed from the centre of gravity in the House of Commons, even less able to get his or her business through the House of Commons and yet more trouble. So I don't know, maybe she goes, maybe she doesn't. I completely agree with George that the idea of finding a Conservative replacement for her in the middle of all this, even if the stage one deal goes through, is a nightmare for them and for us. But also, I think you have to realise that the fact that there are so many people in the Tory party with ambitions to replace her now and the fact that those conversations are so active is another factor that's badly distorting how people are contributing to the debate at the moment because you have every senior Tory who fancies their chances saying what they think the Conservative associations want to hear, not what they think is best for the country. It's the Tory AGM season. They're all terrified of votes of no confidence and so they're playing to the gallery of the most extreme parts of the Conservative membership. So actually the speculation over the leadership is not helping the Brexit process either. I don't want to be the one ruining George's holiday after this uh, meaningful vote goes through, but we do have the Implementation Act and all the legislation still to pass afterwards. And I'm sure there will be that sense of relief and the political calculus will change. But the potential for trench warfare around this incredibly important piece of legislation that will follow the meaningful vote is high. And uh, I can't imagine that being a, a smooth ride. So what's going to happen over the next few days? Much like the beginning of the week, all eyes once again are on Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, to try and solve Mrs May's pickle. If Mr Cox can somehow persuade the DUP to get on board with the Brexit deal, Theresa May has a fair chance of winning a third or even a fourth meaningful vote next week or the week after. He's been cooking up something rather complicated, which we're going to try and explain. So, James Blitz, as we were talking earlier in the podcast, Mr Cox produced this rather damning legal advice earlier in the week about the new withdrawal package Mrs May brought back from Brussels and that really sunk it for Eurosceptics and crucially for the DUP. They said they weren't going to go on board but he's now looking to do something else. Can you take us through this? This is all about the Vienna Convention. Yes, as you say, in a week of many surprises, one of the most extraordinary was when Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, produced his legal advice on Tuesday because the assumption was that as an Attorney General he would do exactly what Lord Goldsmith had done over the Iraq War in 2003. In other words, start out by saying that the Iraq War was illegal because you needed two UN uh, resolutions and then he changed his advice. And Cox actually, to his enormous credit, at least in the eyes of many international lawyers, some of whom I've spoken to this week, said... No, he was going to stick pretty much with the same advice, and that is that you couldn't unilaterally get out of the backstop, and that did a lot to sink Mrs May on the second meaningful vote. What he is now supposed to be looking at is the idea of going to the 1969 Vienna Convention, which is basically the convention that governs all international treaties, and basically argue in revised legal advice that if... The British argue in an international court that there are real changes in circumstances that have happened in, say, 2021-22. They could argue internationally that they could leave the backstop unilaterally. This gives some kind of cover to them. 
I think it's pretty unlikely he's going to do that, I have to say. He is clearly talking about providing some kind of revised document. But most international lawyers, including Martin Howe, who sits on the so-called Star Chamber, which is the ERG's way of judging everything, basically say this idea of using the Vienna Convention is absolute tosh. It's just not going to work. You cannot make the argument in international law using that convention that circumstances have changed at some future point that allow you to leave the backstop. So I don't think it's a runner. Robert Shimsley, one of the things that has emerged this week is this star chamber that James Blitz talked about, which is eight people, I think, including MPs Dominic Raab, who's a former Brexit secretary and lawyer, and crucially Nigel Dodds, who is the Westminster leader of the DUP and a lawyer and includes two prominent QCs. This chamber is very crucial for trying to win over Eurosceptics and the DUP, and they also ruled against Theresa May's new package, as did Geoffrey Cox. So they're going to look at this Vienna Convention idea and rule on Monday about it, but the is this is not going to do it. So is there anything do you think Jeffrey Cox can do to get those Eurosceptics on board or does it not even matter? I'll tell you, I had one very interesting conversation with a member of the ERG this week who said to me, the one thing that really matters is that when Bill Cash and the others are in this star chamber thinking about this as lawyers, that we also have some political thinkers in with them as well. Now, He was looking at it from the point of view, what if they as lawyers say, actually, well, this is all right. Is that the right political decision? Though obviously... Mrs. May will be hoping from the other way around. But I think this is the real nub of this issue. This is not a legal decision. This is a political decision. I think the most important thing that Geoffrey Cox said in the week, actually, was less the thing that everyone fixated upon, correct and important that was, than that this is fundamentally about politics. He had said there was no legal certainty in Mrs. May's new terms, and yet at the same time said he would back her deal, because in the end, this was a political decision about the balance of risks and the balance of probabilities. And the issue for the ERG and indeed for the Democratic Unionists is one about balance of risk. They're not going to get the legal certainty they want. It is not possible on the terms of the treaty as it exists for them to have the legal certainty they seek as a way of getting out of the hole they have dug for themselves. So they've got to make a political decision. And the political decision they have to make is, are we going to get a better Brexit if we sink Theresa May's deal again? Or... Is Brexit going to become significantly less to our liking? Now, if you're the DUP, and this is an important distinction, you don't necessarily want the same thing as the ERG. The DUP doesn't want a no-deal Brexit. The DUP wants a Brexit which treats Northern Ireland the same as the rest of the United Kingdom. So they are less frightened, I think, in some respects, by a Norway option or a permanent customs union. The ERG is different. But as you look at the balance of political risks, that is the thing that's going to determine the outcome. So we're looking, James, for the next thing in this process is a third meaningful vote, which, as we're recording, looks like it's probably going to be Monday or Tuesday next week. That's before Theresa May goes off to the European Council, where she'll be talking about extension, whether it's a short one to see her deal through or a longer one to provide, as they describe, a greater rethink for the UK, which may include reconsidering Brexit itself. What do you think is the chance of Theresa May winning the third meaningful vote? Because as Robert said, let's say the DUP do change their mind. And it was very notable that Arlene Foster, the leader of the DUP in Northern Ireland, spoke in very emollient terms about having a deal. We need to get a deal. We don't want no deal. Because in a way, there are slightly divergent interests here between the DUP and the ERG, because many in the ERG are happy with no deal, but the DUP certainly are not. Well, I think it's very hard to predict what's going to happen on Tuesday, frankly. I think the assumption at the moment at Westminster is that she will lose again but that she will lose by a narrower margin. The real problem for May 
is that she is very unlikely to bring on many backbench Labour MPs. I mean, even if she were to whittle the ERG right down to its core group... About 20 e- or about so. About 20 or so. And even if she were to bring the DUP on board, she still needs, what do you think, Seb, a dozen, 20 mm. backbench Labour MPs who are going to come over to her side exactly. and get her over the line. And the trouble is, backbench Labour MPs can now see actually no deal has largely disappeared as a scenario because May has set out a very clear program to take us over March the 29th into a new phase and there's no need to come on board. And so I think that's the real problem for her. This is, I think, the key point about MV3, that for all of this process, Theresa May ran a twin-track strategy of trying to scare both sides. You scared the Remainers that we could have no deal, and you scare the no-dealers that we might remain or have a very, very much softer Brexit. What has materially changed this week is that the Remainers are no longer scared. They don't see no deal as being likely. They see only upside at the moment. Mrs May's deal has now become the worst-case scenario for them. All of the other options look better. And so it's not just the Labour MPs who might have voted for it. It's also the handful of Conservatives who no longer have any incentive to vote for Theresa May's deal. So I think getting those numbers to get her over the line still looks very, very difficult. So we have MV3 and we all agree that if that happens on Tuesday, as we expect, you'll see more people switching. 40 already switched side, there may be another 40 or maybe even more. And as we talked about earlier, very hardline Eurosceptic. You know, I spoke to Connor Burns, who is a senior person in the ERG, very close to Boris Johnson, was his former parliamentary private secretary. He's now saying, I'm actively looking for decisions to back this deal. But as you said it's not going to get there. Mrs May then go to the council and will come out with something about extension and then as you hinted at Robert it's MV4 which will be three days notionally before Brexit is going to happen. At that point Theresa May will be using the stick to water your sceptics to say okay this is your final chance if you don't back this it is going to be a long extension and the question is will MPs once they're faced with a no deal on Friday or a longer extension which way do they go and one is it would be a longer extension. Yeah, I mean, I buy into all the logic of what you've just said. I have to say, I do still think that the notion of a fourth go at this, I think she's going to have to be terribly, terribly close, even if defeating the third vote, to justify doing this a fourth time. I think it's going to have to be really a handful of votes needed. She needs 75 switches. She's going to have to probably get... 60 or 55 of them to justify a fourth stab at this because the tide is running away from it. And if the European Council agrees to the notion of a long extension, I think all bets are off. I think that she will find that she is losing people as quickly as she is gaining people because, as I said, all of the soft Brexiters, all of the Remainers, all of the Labour MPs who might have, in the final analysis, have voted for her deal are all going to look at the situation and think this is going to get better. I have to say, by the way, that the notion that a long extension is a panacea to all of our problems, I think, is flawed. In my opinion, it will simply reopen the whole Pandora's box and we'll be back to the beginning. But nevertheless, if Mrs May is offered a long extension at the European Council, I think the chances of her getting it through on a fourth attempt are very, very gloomy. If I can just add to that one second, on this MV4 point, if May loses next week and she then agrees a long extension... The reason I think she can't really bring MV4 back before March 29th is that the government is committed 
by David Liddington and also to a large extent by the motion that was passed this week to hold a two-week consultation process on alternative ways forward. Now, that, I think, is the government's commitment. Now, it has to go through with that if they go through something like alternative votes on second referendum, Norway, permanent customs union, if all of those fail to get a majority, then in those circumstances, assuming she has stayed on, she can come back one more time and say, well, look, you haven't agreed on anything else. What about my deal? And I think the alternative then probably would be we'd probably go to an election because then I think you'd have a total stalemate. But I think the idea, though, of bringing MV4 back before the 29th, I can't see it. So this is what are called indicative votes. Now, on the motion to extend Article 50 this week, there was an amendment laid by Yvette Cooper and Oliver Letwin, and this would have given the House of Commons control to have indicative votes. And that came very close within two votes of winning. But David Littleton, as you said, James, had committed to holding these series of indicative votes. And this is to try and find some majority in the House of Commons for something else. But that would only happen, if I'm right, if we have a long extension because David Liddington was talking about two weeks for this to happen and that takes you well into April. Yes, that's absolutely right. If you look at what he said in Hansard, he didn't actually talk about indicative votes. What he talks about is consultations with opposition parties about a way to define what the future majority is. He's left the actual method by which you do it somewhat open. But what is clear is the commitment that once May comes back from European Council, over that next two-week period, you then go through... the House deciding. Indicative votes is obviously almost certainly the way forward. It's not guaranteed to produce a result. One has to always go back to what happened over House of Lords reform in 2003, when you had indicative votes put to the House of Commons on what kind of reform they wanted to have in terms of appointed and elected peers. Lots of different options were put. The House of Commons rejected every single one of them. There wasn't a majority There's a risk, it's small, but it's possible that you could have exactly the same result this time. If we do end up in that pathway, long extension, indicative votes, let's just assume for a moment that the House of Commons is able to coalesce around something. If we have a long extension, we're going to have a new Prime Minister, because... Once you get past December, the Conservatives can have another go at removing Theresa May. At that point, they would almost certainly succeed. And when they do, they're not likely to put somebody who's a softer Brexiter into number 10 they like to put someone harder so you could have the situation where you have indicative votes pulling the country towards a softer brexit and a prime minister who is more determined to resist it and because you've got a long extension they can say well actually what we're going to do is spend these 18 months or these nine months or these 10 months preparing for a no deal brexit so one of the things i think we're going to have to pin down is that if brussels agrees to a long extension it's going to have to have some kind of guarantee this isn't merely to extend the preparation time for an ideal Brexit. And that also points towards a general election, Robert, that if you have a new Conservative Prime Minister, say it's Boris Johnson, who wants to go for a no-deal Brexit, that would be my guess on what he would want to do, then that would have to get a clear majority and he would have to go to the country for that because changing the PM is fine, but it doesn't change the Commons arithmetic and that's why we're in this mess at the moment. I think it's an interesting point and you could be right, although I think it's difficult for a Conservative leader now to go to the country having failed to deliver a form of Brexit. I think it would be difficult. I think if they get Brexit through, a new Tory leader can come in and say, we've delivered Brexit, now elect me, give me the majority to create to build Brexit Britain. I think going to the country to say, give me my, my no-deal Brexit, it's risky. I could see why 
it could happen, but it is risky. And finally, James, we always love making predictions, which is very difficult in these turbulent times. But for both of you, after the events of this week, what would be your gut instinct on where this thing is going to end up? Notably, are we going to leave on the 29th of March? We're definitely not leaving on the 29th of March. I think we can be sure of that. Next week, if I had to make a prediction, put my head on the line, I think May will lose a bit more narrowly, but she will lose. She will go to European Council, negotiate an extension of about 21 months, come back, stay in office. The indicative votes process will go through. I really can't predict how that will come out. If I had to make a guess, I think it's permanent customs arrangement. I then think the question arises, as Robert says, what does this May the do then? This effort of predictions ever. You're taking us well into... The- this is brilliant. Keep going. <laughs> do you want me to stop? No, 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 no. Well, I think it's more interesting to try and look forward because then you can work out what's right and wrong. So I think permanent customs arrangement, then I think May can't possibly carry that through. She goes, Tory leadership election, Boris Johnson gets elected, and he says, I can't push through customs arrangement either. So we have a general election. And Robert? <laughs> I agree with a lot of what James said. This is the one point where I get stuck is it's so apparent to me the direction in which this process is going that I truly struggle to understand why any of the hard Brexiters don't understand this themselves and are not ready to jump back on board. So at this stage, I agree with James. I don't quite think she's going to make it on Tuesday, but there are three or four more days. I think it is going to be very close. And obviously, were she to make it, that would be quite a turnaround my instincts is that she's not going to that we're heading to the european council and then much of the path that james has described well i'm going to just say because i've said this a couple of months ago and i might as well just keep with the prediction even if it's entirely wrong is that at the absolute end of the day even if there was an envy for the night before brexit i still think she's got a very likely chance of getting her deal through because I think a lot of the Brexiters will make the calculations that we've just talked about and they will see that every other route leads to a softer Brexit. That's what people in the Cabinet think and that's what men in the ERG have realised and if that motion goes across the whole Conservative Party then she might have a chance of getting it through. I think it's a perfectly plausible scenario. Well, on that note, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Alex, James, Miranda and Robert for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.